Well, friends, what do you believe? What do you believe it would take for the people of this city to follow Jesus? What do you believe that it would take for the people of this city to follow Jesus? What situation, set of circumstances would have to happen? What circumstances would have to come about? And to bring it home, what role would you have to play to see the people in this city follow Jesus? Charles Simeon served as pastor at Trinity Church in Cambridge from 1782 to 1836. In fact, as he served as pastor in that church, it was actually against the very will of the congregation that he did so. He served against the desires of many in the church, not because he was a bad pastor, not because he didn't preach the Word of God. In fact, it was quite the opposite. It was because he was a man of the Word, believing in the Bible alone and its call for conversion and holiness and world evangelism that the very people of the Trinity Church in Cambridge did not want Charles Simeon to be their pastor. So for about 12 years, the people refused to let him preach the Sunday evening message. For 12 years, they boycotted the Sunday morning sermons, going so far as to come in and lock the pews. Back in those days, pews had doors, and every family had their own pew. And so they would come in and they would lock the doors of their pews so that the people couldn't come to church. And so for 12 years, Charles Simeon got up every Sunday morning and he would preach the Word of God and the gospel of grace that it held out to people sitting in the aisles. He began with 12 years of opposition and heartache, but he lasted for 54 years at that church. How did Charles Simeon do it? This is what he says in his own words. In this state of things, I saw no remedy but faith and patience. The passage of Scripture which subdued and controlled my mind was this. The servant of the Lord must not strive. It was painful indeed to see the church, with the exception of the aisles, almost forsaken. But I thought that if God would only give a double blessing to the congregation that did attend there would on the whole be as much good as done if the congregation were doubled and the blessing limited to only the half of that amount. This comforted me many, many times when without such a reflection, I should have sunk under my burden. I saw no remedy but faith and patience. The servant of the Lord must not strive. Friends, what would it take for you to give yourself to seeing the many people that Jesus has in this city come to Him? What would it look like for us if we were to give the rest of our days, just like Charles Simeon did, a normal everyday man who faithfully preached the God, Word of God, what would it look like for us to give the rest of our days to seeing the people of this city follow Jesus?
What would it look like for us to give the rest of our days to see the people in this church, the people in the world, follow Jesus? This morning what I want you to see as we're going to look at a large portion of Scripture is that through our sacrificial witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ, through our declaring and displaying and celebrating the beauty of Jesus Christ, He, He is overturning the old sinful order and establishing His new and glorious kingdom among us. This morning, as I said, we're going to look at a large portion of Scripture that's going to hold this truth out. So if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn with me to Acts 18. Acts chapter 18, we're going to be picking up in verse 22. If you didn't bring your own Bible, that's fine. No worries. we got those pew Bibles there, and Acts 18 is on page 872. If you're new to the Bible, once you get to 872, look for that big 18, and then scroll your finger down until you find that little 22. I'm actually not going to read 1822, but just be there. Uh, let me tell you what's going to look like this morning. We're going to be looking from Acts 18.22 all the way to Acts 20, verse 38. So it's really more than two chapters. And because it's so much, I'm not going to be reading the entire thing. I'm going to be reading portions of it throughout the sermon. This is one of the reasons we provide those sermon cards that you can find in the foyer. So hopefully you were able to read the passage before. If not, hey, you got something to do this afternoon instead of watching NASCAR. More on that in my sermon. But let me go ahead and give you the points of our sermon today. Let me go ahead and give you the points that we're going to be hitting as we go through uh, this, this portion of Scripture. Really, Paul's third missionary journey. Point number one, the gospel sets straight our magical thinking. The gospel sets straight our magical thinking. Number two, the gospel lays bare our idolatrous hearts. The gospel lays bare our idolatrous hearts. And number three, the gospel builds up the kingdom gathering. The gospel builds up the kingdom gathering. And as we look at each of these things, my prayer as we consider them is that the God among us, the God who is at work and the God who is on his throne would build in us an endurance and a faith just like Charles Simeon had in Jesus so much so that we would give our lives to those around us and to see the kingdom of God built in these days. That's my prayer for us. So let's, let's jump into it by looking at point one. The gospel sets straight our magical thinking. We see this in 1822 through 1922. So in 1822 through 28 there, we really see uh, kind of the conclusion and the beginning of a new section. Last week we saw as we came to the end of Paul's second missionary journey that he was leaving Corinth. But when he was there he met this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, and we find that they show back up here at the end of chapter 18 when they come across this man named Apollos. Now Apollos has some wonky theology that Paul himself is going to deal with here in just a minute, so hang on to that. But we're really going to look today as we come through 18 and into 19 at Paul's final missionary journey, at least as a free man. We see Paul complete the mission that he's given, passing on the baton, and yet commit to walk with the Lord for the rest of his days, whatever that entails. And so this covers, really, his third missionary journey, the exact geography that his second missionary journey had covered. It's around 3,000 miles, and this, this section that we're going to be looking at today really takes place over the course of three years, from 52 to 55 A.D. And the number of people we see, as we see here at the end of 18, 
that are included in Paul's kind of traveling companions begins to expand more and more and more. And we see here the focus really begins to transition in the book of Acts from Paul specifically to the church that's being built as he's going in these journeys. This is exactly what we see in that last section, as I said, of chapter 18 with Priscilla and Aquila helping this guy Apollos understand the way of God more accurately, it says, as they are taking up more and more of the ministry themselves of gospel proclamation. But then we get to really the biggest chunk of what Paul is going to do on his third missionary journey, and that is in the city of Ephesus. Really, all of this section we're going to be looking at today has to do with what happens in the city of Ephesus. So let me pick up reading for us in Acts 19, then, verse 1 through 22. It says there, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize. But who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent him... And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Okay, so we see again in this section that the gospel sets straight our magical thinking. 
First, we see him here in Ephesus. As I said, it takes up the largest portion. He spends the majority of his third missionary journey here. He spends three years here, the text says. And really, the city of Ephesus, just to give you a little bit of background about where he's at here and what's going on, it is a city of half a million people, okay, which, which may not sound that big to us who kind of live in this globalized times, and we know huge cities like New York City or L.A. or, or Hong Kong. Uh, and so we have these huge, huge cities, right? Well, for Ephesus, half a million people in the ancient world is one of those huge cities. It is a huge metropolitan kind of, kind of coming together of people. And, and actually, in Ephesus is one of the seven wonders of the world. It's the Temple of Artemis. And this is going to become important in just a minute. But in many ways, Paul's time in Ephesus represents really the culmination of his entire ministry. There are things that Paul does here and later as he speaks to the Ephesian elders that kind of encapsulate all that Paul is about. We see this in the letter to the Ephesians that maybe you can go back and read this week. Followers there, he finds as he shows up though, of John. There in the first verse we see that Paul encounters what he believes are disciples of Jesus, but actually follow John. And we actually know that, that after Jesus, for centuries later, there, there are these, these people who follow John, the Baptist in particular. And Paul figures this out when he asks them a couple questions. You remember those there in verses 2 and 3? Two things they don't know. Number one, they don't know that there is a Holy Spirit. And he says, then, to whom were you baptized? Because we're supposed to baptize people in what? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They say, we don't know the Holy Spirit. Then who were you baptized? What name were you baptized in? They say, we're baptized in the baptism of the name of John. Paul says, oh, this, I realize. I know this baptism of John. It was the baptism that John the Baptist was doing. We can read about in the beginning of the Gospels, where it was a baptism of repentance. And Paul explains, though, that the Gospel, here, this Gospel, and we see that they are baptized right then and there in the name of Jesus. And they receive this Holy Spirit that they didn't know about through the laying on of hands. In the book of Acts, this is the last time that we see the Spirit poured out. This is the last time we see the laying on of hands. It's the last time we see speaking in tongues. We saw it earlier with Peter's ministry, you'll remember it. We saw it with the Jews, then the Samaritans, and then with the Gentiles, particularly with Cornelius back in Acts 10 and 11. What is the point of this? If this is the last time we see it here in the book of Acts, it, it must be a pretty big deal. What, why does Luke include this? Why specifically does he include this delay? You see there that they're baptizing, and then it's not until Paul lays his hands on them that the Holy Spirit comes. There are some who then say that this is what we should expect in our own time and day. But what is the point here? Well, as we've seen it each time before, this here does the same thing. It validates the inclusion of a specific category of people. First it was the Jews welcomed into the kingdom, then the Samaritans, and then the Gentiles. Each time this happens in the book of Acts, it notes an inclusion of a new group of people. So who are these people now who are included? What inclusion is it showing? Well, it's showing that those who had just believed in the baptism of John, that is a baptism of repentance, have now been welcomed in. Paul highlights how simple repentance isn't enough here. 
This was the method of John the Baptist, to call people to repent, that is to turn from their sin. But Paul here in this passage, in verse 4 specifically, highlights how this is not enough. Simply turning from our sin is not enough. Paul says there must be something else. The real question is, what are we turning to? This is what we call belief and faith. Whereas John the Baptist's faith, or at least his baptism, reflected just a turning from the gospel of Jesus Christ reflects a turning to. Friends, what I want you to see here is that repentance is good. Repentance is good. But without belief, that is, without forward faith, without turning to Jesus and pursuing Jesus, just simple repentance is not enough. Look at verse 4b. John baptized with baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. Repentance and belief. This is Jesus' message too. In, in, in Mark 1, he shows up on the scene and it says he began to preach the gospel saying, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. Friends, this is the gospel itself that we need repentance that flows from faith. Now, friend, maybe you're here this morning and, and you aren't a Christian. Now, I want to make this clear. Maybe you showed up at church today because your intention is to be better, to clean yourself up, to get your act right. And you think, well, if I go sit among those church people, maybe I'll look better. Maybe I'll get better. Maybe things will go better. Maybe if I just try harder to get my act together, maybe I can figure it out. But the question is, how clean do you have to be? Just how much do you have to clean yourself up to be worthy of the most pure and holy and righteous God? And the answer is we can't do it. We can't turn enough. The gospel is that repentance doesn't save you. It is important. You must turn from your sins, but that alone isn't enough. What are you turning to? Who are you turning to? Friends, as you turn from your sins, turning to the one who will save you, and that being Jesus Christ. Do you know this Jesus? This man who came, God in the flesh, who came and lived a perfect life never needing to repent. He never did any wrong. He never needed to turn back to God because He had never turned His face away from Him. He was perfect and holy in every way, obeyed the law in every way. And yet then He dies. Why? To give His life for us. And so Paul picks up the reality here that Peter picked up back in Acts 4.12 where he said, There is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. No king, no president, no pop star, no influencer, no one else under heaven can save us. But it is only Jesus. This is the good news. If the message of Christianity is you got to clean yourself up to be good enough for God, that is nothing but a bunch of bad news. 
But if the message of Christianity, as we see it held out in God's Word, is that there is one who came, and He alone can cleanse you by His death, and He alone can give you new life by His resurrection, and He alone can guide your days and your nights from His throne in heaven. If that is the message of Christianity, what better news is there in the world? And so we have this good news right here at the beginning. But it keeps going. We see that Paul stayed in Ephesus for three months. He was, he was wrestling with the Jews in the synagogue until they, they get angry enough to push him out, as they always do. And then he goes to this hall of Tyrannus, and he's there for another two years in Asia. And did you catch what it said there at, in verse 10? He continued for two years that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now, now Asia was not as big as Asia is today. But my goodness, it's still a lot of people. He's giving himself for two years to declaring this gospel that both Jews and Greeks may hear. And then we come to this interesting story about these seven sons of this high priest named Sceva. We see here as we enter this story that, that the same kind of miracles that happened with Jesus and, and happened with Peter are also happening with Paul. These are not necessarily miracles that we should expect to see in our own day. These are miracles of the Son of God and His big A apostles where they are reflecting God moving among them. Remember, miracles in the Gospels and in Acts are a reflection of a spiritual reality and the kingdom breaking in. And so the same thing is happening in this place. But, but these seven sons of Sceva, these seven guys who were not Christians, it says, in fact, they're, they're itinerant Jewish exorcists. I mean, that's quite a job title to have, you know, on your door. Itinerant Jewish exorcists, right? That they didn't get this truth. And so they show up at this place with this, this magical thinking, this incantation, and they get a holy whooping. You see that they're traveling there. They start trying to take up Jesus' name, which as we've seen in the book of Acts, anytime the name of Jesus is used, it represents His authority, right? As the name of Jesus is used, it represents His kingly authority. And they try to use this as some kind of hocus pocus. Now, I don't know how many of you have watched hocus pocus lately. It's Halloween, right? But it's this magical thinking, right? It's this idea that, that if they just use the right words, if they just use the right line, the right spell, the right way of doing it, then they too can have the power and the authority that Jesus has. But then you get the best line in our passage today, I think. There in verse 15, right? They show up and they say... In the name of Jesus, who Paul, who Paul proclaims, we command you to come out. And, and this demon that's inside this man, he, he ain't having it. He says, well, Jesus I know. Paul I recognize. But who are you? Who do you guys think you are coming up in here using the name of Jesus? Now, it's pretty bad if demons start rebuking you, okay? That's how you know you've gotten your life off track a lot. And it says that this single man overtakes these seven men, right? Don't imagine this too much, but think of the whooping that these seven men got, that, that, that they run out of the house naked and wounded. He, he goes like Tasmanian devil on them. And we see here how the people respond then. 
And this is the surprising element of this story, isn't it? Verse 17. And this became known to all the residents. Yeah, no, duh. <laughs> You're right. This is front page news right here. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. Why? Catch this. Look at the text. Verse, uh, verse 17 there. You would think that fear fell on all of them because of this demon, right? They're all like, we ain't going over to that guy's house. Man, you know what that demon did to those seven guys? We're not going over there. That's not why, though. Look at verse 17. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. That means to be lifted up, spread, proclaimed. And what's the response? Verse 18. Also, many of those who were now believers, okay, these are Christians, they came confessing their sins, divulging, sharing, opening up the practices that they had undertaken. And a number of those who had practiced the magic arts brought their books. There were these scrolls that they thought if they, they read these scrolls or they had these scrolls, then they some kind, somehow could have magical powers and they could affect reality. They bring them all and they burn them. They burned them in the sight of all. They counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Let me just tell you how much that is. That is 137 years of a daily wage. That is a lot of money that they just threw in the fire. That is a huge financial sacrifice. And yet they counted it worth doing because of what they realized. And this is the question. Have you realized it? Is Jesus enough? Or do you also need some magical incantations? Now, I know, I assume that, that most of us don't have a, a cauldron at home brewing on the stove and we're going to go home and cast some spells. Maybe you do, and I don't know you that well. I'd love to hear more. But we do have magical thinking that still runs rampant in our world, whether we realize it or not. And that's not just in the East. Here in Western society, civilization, we have magical thinking. At its root, then, let me see if I can help you see it in your own life. At its root, magical thinking is any approach to life that replaces faith with technique. Do you understand what I'm saying? So they realized that if they just had the right words, if they just had the right name, if they just had the right way of saying things, just the right spell and incantation, they didn't need faith in anything else because they knew their works and what they said and what they did would do it. And it's in our own life we see the same thing. The belief that the right words with the right procedures, the right methods, we can control reality. We see this with what we call the prosperity gospel or prosperity teaching, that if you just pray enough, if you just believe enough, if you just say enough, if you just show up and, 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 and you lose it enough and the Holy Spirit speaks through you enough, then you can have everything. We see this in, in books like The Prayer of Jabez or, or The Secret. This methodology that if you just do this thing, then everything else will come to you. But maybe hitting a little bit closer at home, we see this in our parenting or in our marriages. 
that if I just take up this method of discipline, or just this philosophy of education, or just we just do this in our marriage, if we have this, many, this much alone time each week, then, then, then everything will be okay. We don't need any faith. We just need the right procedures. This is exactly what legalism is. Legalism is Christianized magic. That if we just do the right things, then everything will be okay. Some of us even consider this when it comes to cultural engagement and sharing the gospel. It's run rampant in Christianity over the last 50 to 100 years that if we just get people to walk an aisle, if we just get people to pray a prayer, if we just get people to sign a card, if we just get people in this class or this program or this thing or that thing, then boom, the church will explode. Boom, the world will be reached with Jesus. It's Christianized magic. Friends, why are we so prone to these things, though? Why are we so prone to believe that if we just do enough, if, if we just have a Christianized version of, of baseball, you know, baseball players, they'll wear the same socks always, and they'll never step on the foul line when they walk onto the field, and they'll always have three pieces of bubble gum in their mouth. Why do we do that in our own Christian walk? It's all about control. It's exactly what the sons of Sceva were trying to do here, and it's the exact same thing we can find ourselves trying to do. Friends, I wonder if there's anything in your life that you're magical about, that you're superstitious about. Perhaps you need to follow the example of these believers here and repent. But don't just repent. Turn to the one who doesn't work with magic because he's king of reality. And he doesn't need your magic. And then we can see the same kind of fruit perhaps they did. Verse 20 so the, Lord, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. In the end, it wasn't that demon that prevailed. It was the word of God. As we move then to the second section, we see how this belief in the gospel also lays bare the idolatry of our hearts, the idolatry of our hearts. Let me read to us Acts 19, 23 through 41. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. This is the second time this phrase has been used in this passage. Don't miss that. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is a danger not only that this trade of ours may come into dis disrepute, but also that the temple of the great god goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificent, she whom all Asia... And the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, 
who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, for whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesians is temple keeper to the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? I, I'm not going to deal with that this morning. I'll let you all go research what that sacred stone is. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are, pro, there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So what we see here is that so many people in Ephesus had become Christians that the business community had begun to take note there was there, I mentioned a, sec, a little while ago, the Temple of Artemis. It's one of the seven wonders of the world. It's this huge place, this huge temple. It was a huge place of worship. There are lots of foot traffic. It's kind of like if you go to a city and there's like a huge architecture or monument there. You go to it, you have a meal there, you get a t-shirt for the kids, and you get a souvenir, right? That's how the Temple of Artemis was there in Ephesus. It was this major economic center where people were selling a lot of things to become a tourist attraction. And everyone was involved in pocketing money unless you had become a Christian. So who was Artemis then? Well, amongst the Romans, she's called Diana. But she was the goddess of all health and safety and death. But for the Christians, they have Jesus, the God over death resurrected for our eternal safety and health. So if you were a Christian, you were done with Artemis. Why even be involved in it? And so this man, Demetrius, who's a, a silversmith, a master silversmith, building these shrines to Artemis, he sees what's taking place, and so he calls together all the craftsmen in the city of Ephesus. But he realizes you can't get together a mob just on pure greed. And so, so there in verses 25 through 27, Demetrius kind of gives this explanation that, that involves somewhat, they're talking about wealth, he talks about pride in their city and, and their own worship. And he gets them all riled up. But you notice there that his focus is mostly on what? It's on money. His focus is on money. He says it there in verse 28. I'm sorry, 27. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, meaning being our money-making, our, our business may, may go down the drain, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed or dethroned from her magnificence. It, this is, gets at some of the most ironic things that Demetrius brings up here. We see here that, that this idea that they actually believe 
as he says back up there in verse 26, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Do you realize the irony of that statement? That Demetrius is saying the very thing that's, that's obvious and true. That these gods that he is building with his hands are not actually gods. He knows that. But he doesn't care because it's making him money. And this gets at the fraud of idolatry. This gets at the fraud of idolatry. As Isaiah says back in Isaiah 44, Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Does Demetrius not even realize... The mob realize what he's saying. It exposes the root of false worship. The root of false worship that's built in all of our hearts. The thing being worshipped cannot hold the worship itself. Why? Because it Idolatry is this thing on which we put our love and our devotion upon something that is not God. And building off of it then, there is this entire economic system that, false, that, that upholds this false worship. These craftsmen are becoming rich off of the cries, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. When their pocketbook takes a beating, they don't take it sitting down. And so the question then for us is, what would cause a riot in our own day? It seems very insightful for our own times. What do we worship? Well, it's, it's not silver statues, but it's silver phones. Or space gray, if you prefer that color. It's no temple to Artemis, but the Mall of America is a pretty cool place. I don't know about how you feel about Valley View, but it's a temple, isn't it? And people come in, they park in their spots, and they go in. Not to mention our digital temples. They're called Amazon and eBay. We even have religious chants. My body, my choice. All love is love. Don't you know that millions of people today will assume a religious posture as they sit down, they pull the lever, and their feet go up. Millions will gather in temples where cars will go around and around tracks, or men with helmets on will take an odd-shaped ball up and down a field where they sit around and wait for the crack of a bat. Don't miss it. Friends, don't miss it. The world has always made money off of false worship. Whether it's silver, sta silver statues, or status, or identity, or endless pleasure. You think about it. Technology becomes an idol because it promises us access and ease and knowledge. Fashion becomes an idol because it promises us status and identity and expression. 
media and sports promise us pleasure and relaxation and community. What we need to see is not that all of these things are wrong. I'm not arguing that we remove ourselves from the world. They're not wrong in their basic form. But when they hold us, where the world financially benefits from that worship, it becomes a problem. And so how do we break it? How do we break the stranglehold that the world has on us? How do we refuse the claim? We lay bare our hearts before the Lord. And we're open about where we are trapped. Can you see the fraud of your own idolatry this morning? You have needs, and people are more than willing to take your money to meet them. It's not wrong to make the purchase. The error is in mistaking those needs for your deepest needs. The deepest needs that we have can only be met in the free gospel of grace. This is why Christianity is different. Jesus isn't here to sell you anything. Jesus does not need your money. He does not need your silver or gold. Instead, Jesus comes, and as it says in Isaiah 55, to come without money and receive wine and bread and be freely fed. This is the free gospel of grace. That Jesus would come in the midst of our brokenness, no matter how full our pockets are, and He would say, here is salvation. Receive it. And friends, when we experience this, when we experience this, it drives us to repent of laying our money down at the feet of God. Drives us to repent our idolatry in the world's stuff. And we stop using people and using our money to get things. And we start using our money and start using our things to bless people. This is actually part of the new community that the gospel creates. And that's the last section I want to look at with you this morning. Picking up in Acts 20, 1 and 2. After the uproar ceased, Paul went for the disciples and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. Skip down to chapter, verse 7, chapter 20. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus sitting at the window sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bit over him and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. So we have here some marks that we're going to dive into this week. We'll get more into them next week. 
So I'm going to hold off on the letter or the Paul's final sermon to the Ephesian elders. I want to get back to that. But we see here some things began to take root. And I want you to notice them as we consider what it may take for us to reach our city, not with magical thinking and not with idolatrous spending, but with the gospel of grace. We see there in verse 7 that they had gathered on the first day of the week. We see now a pattern is beginning to emerge. As Paul's starting to hand off the baton of his apostleship and his mission and his ministry off to, to local churches, there begins to be a pattern, a pattern that was really picked up back in Acts 2, but it begins to emerge here even more throughout the rest of the book. Verse 7, they'd gathered on the first day of the week. That is Sunday. That is the day of our Lord's resurrection. And they were gathered together to break bread. Now some take this to mean the Lord's table, which we're going to get to in a minute. But I think it's more general than that. It certainly could have included the Lord's table. But, but it was fellowship. It was marked by their fellowship. But primarily, this little scene here is devoted to one thing. And what is it? Here's the question. Why does Luke include this crazy scene about this, this, this guy Eutychus falling out a window asleep? I, I mean, right, if it wasn't so tragic, it would be humorous. Why does Luke include it here? Because he wants you to see what the people of God, as these local churches were being built, were devoting themselves to. They were devoting themselves to the Word, to its teaching and its preaching. The church is being built and shaped by doctrine. It's being built and shaped by the gospel itself, and it is driving everything else that they do. We'll see that Paul really gives himself to this in, in that final speech to the Ephesian elders. But friends, I want to close by asking you the question again. What will it take for us, as, as, as the church that we are, what will it take for us to display the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ? We could take up all kinds of programs. We could take up all kinds of ministries. We could, we could make our church signs say something cutesy to get people in the door. We could do all kinds of things. But what is it that the people of God had given themselves to here? And what will we give ourselves to in these days as a church, but also as individuals. Well, friends, it is the very Word of God. It was the Word of God being proclaimed. That the people came and they sat. And I'm not going to ask you to do this. We're not going to put anybody up in the windows. But that they sat and listened to Paul as he went on and on and on, declaring to them, explaining to them, opening up to them the Word of God. That's why every gathering in every aspect of our church, from men's and women's Bible studies to Sunday morning to Sunday evening to when we just get together in each other's homes or get together for coffee, meet one another out and about, it must be centered around the Word. When it's like that, we get what we get at the very end of this passage. Look back one more time. I want to jump to the very end for just a minute. Acts 20, picking up in 36. And when he had said these things, we're going to look at it next week. 
When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. There was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. We see a summary then of this whole passage, really in these last few verses on the shore of Miletus with the Ephesian elders clinging to Paul with tear-filled eyes, they understand the gravity of what's taking place. To say goodbye, but to know the work was unfinished. And it remains unfinished, my friends. They, like us, had a significant role to play to push back against magical thinking, see idolatrous hearts captivated, and to live as the church of the living God. They understood what I recently heard a pastor say, that missions isn't primarily the work of the local church, but it is exclusively the work of the local church. So Christian, I wonder if you see your life being lived out in the midst of God's people running toward that end. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, we are so thankful that you are here to hear about the one that we proclaim. And how today, the call for you is the same call that many of us in this room have responded to, and that is to turn from your sin and to turn to Jesus Christ. May we all find ourselves in these days living fully for the one who came, who died, who rose again and is seated at the right hand of the Father until that day when His kingdom comes and congregations never break up and Sabbaths never end. Let us pray. Father, we do come to You today praying and asking, God, that You would move in our hearts as we declare, we declare the goodness of Jesus as we see it here at this table that we would live for Jesus, not just in our eating and our drinking, but in everything that we do. We would seek your glory and your glory alone. God, we pray for salvation to rain down on this place today. That for those of us who know you, it would wash us and refresh us. And that for those who do not know you, that God, you would cleanse them of all unrighteousness. And you would give them new hearts that believe and trust and follow you all the days of their life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.